This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. As you just heard from HBR's Derek Malama, the 14-day inter-island travel quarantine for the counties of Hawaii, Kauai, and Maui went into effect today. Neighbor island travelers to Oahu will not be affected, but will need to quarantine when they return to their home island. Exemptions can be made for essential workers and medical visits, which can be requested from your home county. Maui Mayor Mike Victorino first asked Governor David Ige to reinstate the inter-island quarantine on July 24th, when the number of new positive COVID-19 cases reached a then-record of 60 cases. He spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai about what prompted that request. I saw the numbers rising in Oahu, and it became very concerning and they were having large gatherings, which was occurring here on Maui also. So about two weeks ago, as the numbers went into double digits consistently and continuously rising, I put the alarm out at that point saying, I believe we've got to reinstitute inter-island quarantine because the numbers not only were scary, but growing at a very steady pace. And it kind of fell on deaf ears at, at first. But as it got into the triple digits, which we've had, I think, 12 days of triple digit throughout the state, then I only, is when everyone realized that what I was saying, and I think others were saying the same thing, I wasn't the only one, by the way, that we needed to roll back a little as far as what was happening and reinstitute inter-island quarantine, the 14-day quarantine between islands. So the governor granted us that with the responsibility of doing it on our own. In other words, we need to do our own checking. We need to do our own contacts. We need to do all the other aspects that the state has been doing for trans-Pacific flights. We instituted that. I just got off the phone a few minutes before I called you to find out how the first couple of flights went this morning. Some glitches, and we expected that. We expect some challenges the first few days. However, Overall, it went fairly smooth. My reports, there was no major challenges. I think the only challenge we're seeing now, we were inundated with exemptions requests. And so we're still kind of trying to catch up on that. I don't think we expected quite so many so quickly. However, we are working on it. And I've assigned additional personnel to handle that so that we can get the backlog taken care of. These are for exemptions like essential workers, fire police, doctors, nurses, essential infrastructure workers, people like that, that we're all applying one time, overloaded our system. And so we admit that we had more requests than we could handle. And so I put extra personnel and hopefully by tomorrow, we'll be back to what I call a normalcy. Because some of these people travel every day or every week. And so once we get them in the system, it'll be a lot easier. So those have been the biggest challenges we've had in the first day of the reinstituting of the 14-day quarantine. It sounds like the responsibility is now with the counties for the quarantine, not just the enforcement, but the checking in and the exemption where previously it was the state function? Yes. And so the inter-island quarantine now has fallen upon the three counties, Maui, Kauai, and Hawaii County, to um, institute put their own personnel, We're fortunate we have Roberts, who's been helping the state. We're hiring them to help us in that area. So that makes it a little bit easier for us to uh, have a continuity in this whole process. Because our form is not much different than the state form. The only thing that we've eliminated, and we were told by Corporation Council, and they're still checking into this respect, that we couldn't ask medical questions because we don't have the Department of Health checking our forms. Our forms are not going straight to the Department of Health. We are collecting them. So until they find a final determination from the AG's office, we've left all the health questions out. We do the health screening, all of that, but we're not asking the health questions. Uh, Have you been sick? Have you any symptoms like coughs, rough, sore throat, things like that that's on the state form? We don't have that on our county form. July 24th, you initially requested, and then you asked again on August 5th. Why do you think it took so long for the state to come together on this quarantine? I, I really rather not speak to anybody else's decision-making. Uh, I think the governor and others, other mayors, were looking at what was trending. I still felt we should have acted a little earlier. Maybe we could have slowed down some of the outbreaks in Oahu. However, with that being said, I don't like to second-guess decisions made by others. I can tell you why I 
wanted to do it and the rationale I had, but maybe some people don't share the same rationale. And so I respect that. And now we're, we're seeing the uh, results, and it's a little scary right now. But this is going on, going on throughout the United States. We're not the only one. As the other states have opened up like us, people have decided, oh, they didn't have to be careful anymore. We didn't have to wear masks. We could get together in large groups, go to the beach, have a great time. And it was meant to open up in a sense of safety and health as the priority. But... I'll say the public in general, there are many who just didn't pay attention, didn't concern themselves with that. And uh, many of us who had and worked so hard and got the numbers down to almost nothing, we're really offended in that respect. They've done this, and now we are paying the price because that slows down the recovery of the economy. It puts people in harm's way. We had three more deaths reported yesterday in Oahu. Again, did we need to go through this? I really hope we never have to do this again. And we learn this time when we come out of it, we will be conscientious in protecting ourselves and our families, which then in turn protects our community. There's definitely an alarming number here on Oahu. And you warned that there could be alarming numbers on Maui this week. Can you talk about what you're seeing from your contact? My medical group that's checking all these numbers and the potential for future numbers Many of these cases are evolving, some from the clusters at these beach parties that you saw on Facebook where groups were getting together and having drum uh, group. They're religious in nature, and they were uh, hundreds of them would get together and sing and dance on the beach, and there was no face mask. There were no physical distancing. They were just together. And we've seen some residual effect from that. We're seeing some from travel to Oahu. I have a group that went to Oahu for a party, and four out of the five that went to the party have proven positive after returning back to Maui. And there's a, a yoga class that kind of, just like your gyms, one super spreader went to a number of other events and have spread to other areas so far the numbers have been fairly low but part of the 7 to 15 that's going to be reported today comes from that yoga class uh, exposure so there's very similar situations happening here that happened in oahu right now we're fortunate because we've been able to reduce the number of gatherings social gatherings now down to 10 indoors or outdoors and people are starting to comply our police were out this weekend citing people, warning groups, and they pretty much adhered to the warnings and, and, and dispersed. However, uh, until I have a few weeks of, uh, of the new rules or, or reinstituting of the old rules, if you want to use that term, I won't be confident yet. I will be concerned that we will have higher than usual numbers. Last month, we had 46. The prior two months, we had three and four, a total of seven. That alone is really concerning. And this month, we're at 15. As of yesterday, we're at 15. So, you know, we're always a day behind, right? So today's numbers reflect yesterday's testing, right? So today, I'm expecting we could double what we had for the past first 10 days of the month. I did want to ask you about restrictions. You mentioned there's been a limit on group gatherings of 10 or more people, uh, but there's been no business shutdowns. Here on Oahu, there's been... Uh, shutdowns of beaches and parks and bars and other places uh, across the, the board. So what restrictions are you looking at and what would trigger any closures for Maui County? There's two triggers I'm looking at. Number of cases, and I would say what we're looking at, if we're at double digit between 10 and 20 for five consecutive days, I would truly start to consider pulling back. In other words, looking at closing down beach parks, maybe other areas where people tend to gather, even though we have this 10 or less requirement, let's say these are areas where I have a real fear factor because it's open air. People have this sense of security because it's open air and, you know, the germ's not supposed to spread or supposed to die in the, in the sunlight or, or in the heat. Well, that COVID-19 has proven that incorrect. If you look at the outbreak throughout the United States, Arizona, Nevada, California, Florida, Texas, these are states that are fairly warm states during the summer months, and they have had record numbers. So with that being said, I'm going to be observing the numbers, that's first, and secondly, how people are complying. 
if we have a lot of people that are not complying or we have groups that refuse to comply, then that would be my next trigger to say, okay, just like what your mayor did, we'll shut down or we'll start rolling back. We'll close down bars and other areas that are susceptible to gatherings and um, do what we need to do. But that is the next step. I am hoping that the public will understand. And people in Maui County have been pretty reasonable overall, but I am so afraid that as time goes on, they're not going to be listening. And that if that continues, I have to take stringent restrictions and be uh, more restrictive and roll back the opening of Maui County. We've now gotten to a point where we need to really be vigilant. You know, you hear this all the time on the TV, radio, uh, all the medical experts, everyone is saying the same message. Uh, we've let our guard down. Okay, we know what we've done wrong. We've got to be more vigilant. We've got to start doing what is right. Wearing of masks, properly wearing of the mask, wearing the right mask, you know, cloth or surgical, three-layer surgical mask is very important. N95 is the best, but they're hard to find, and I'd rather keep that for our emergency responders and our healthcare workers who are the heroes and the front lines protecting our health and well-being. So leave the N95s for them. But all the other types of masks, but wear something is very important. If you can wear the correct mask, masking is helpful. Physical distance, keep six to ten feet between yourself and whomever, especially not your immediate family who you, who you have contact day in and day out with, yeah? And finally, oh, don't go to work if you're sick. If you're at work and you feel a little not well, go home. And good hygiene and sanitation. Wash your hands five times as you're used to. And clean the areas, high-touch areas. You know, wipe, have it sanitized as much as possible. These are the methods that I think most of us agree, medical experts, uh, political uh, uh, leaders, and others throughout the world and the states and uh, Hawaii, that if we all do that together, we can overcome COVID-19. And the saying I give to our people here in Maui County is this, only you can prevent COVID-19 from spreading. Maui County Mayor Mike Victorino talking with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about the 14-day inter-island travel quarantine. To download traveler forms or request an exemption, you can visit the county website where you're traveling to or from. We'll have links to those on our website. Look for the Conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Stress is a common condition for a lot of folks in these days of COVID-19. It's especially prevalent for frontline workers, including medical personnel. This week, we're looking at how several medical groups are addressing that challenge. And this morning, we focus on Hawaii Pacific Health. The group covers Straub, Kapulani Medical Center for Women and Children, as well as Palimomi and Wilcox Hospital on Kauai. Allison Zeck is a leadership development manager for Hawaii Pacific Health, and she spoke with the conversation's Catherine Cruz. They really are taking a systemic approach to trying to support our physicians, our leaders, our employees across our system. And really, HPH was focused on employee well-being prior to the pandemic, and we've been encouraging employees to connect within their facilities and across the facilities, of course, for some time through well-being committees and spirit weeks and things like that. We base our well-being efforts on the well-being model and the six components. So it's purpose, financial, physical, social, community, and spiritual, emotional. And those six components are really what provide a backdrop or a platform for us to take a look at well-being. And a couple of the things that we've done that we're proud of because we're getting great feedback that they're helpful is we stood up the HPH eConnect internal communication tool uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. 
And it's a platform internally that allows us to connect and give lots of immediate great information across our system. And that includes videos, messaging from our CEO, Ray Barra, and our EVP of Quality, Dr. Melinda Ashton. And, of course, we know that during times of crisis, employees want a lot more information. And they want that sense of reassurance from our leaders. So that sort of set the stage. We've got well-being resources there, webinars, of course, links to EAP, articles, also wins. We've got an area called Shaka and sharing wins across the system as well. And then within eConnect, we've also stood up a new podcast called Healthier Connection, where we interview guests across our system. They are a combination of employees, frontline, more support system employees, physicians, um, and our topics have been a range of things from mindfulness, uh, the importance of gratitude and ritual, how to cope with uncertainty, uh, unlocking the power of hope, having tools for a good night's sleep. And another thing we are doing is having weekly calls, actually three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the Leadership Connection live calls where we invited leaders from across our system to join us for just a few minutes, a pause during the day to connect, reset, emphasis on self-care, breathing, mindfulness, and we've gotten lots of great feedback about how that's just been a respite. In, in the middle of the day. Well, it, it's a you know great tool because you can help each facility understand what might be unique to their situation as, as we battle this pandemic and foster a more empathetic relationship as we understand what everybody's roles are. I think that's exactly right, Catherine. We are very committed to this collaborative teaming, and that means, of course, increased empathy and compassion within the healthcare team. And that means working with our chaplains, our clinical psychologist team, our social workers, and of course our managers and directors at our leadership meetings monthly. So each of us sort of came together from our own areas and said, okay, how do we do this together? And that means we're collaborating on various efforts within each facility and an example is that the chaplains came up with an idea to come up with an encouraging word of the day and now I'm using that in our monthly manager director meetings and throughout our leadership conversations about how that can be an anchor a real support place for people and those words are things like compassion and hope and transformation and stillness and and the idea is that we're here for each other and we are supporting one another so that we can do our best work in supporting our patients and the community. Well, you know, one thing that I was struck by was that early on Hawaii Pacific Health went and tested a large number of their employees. We did and that was a leadership decision and there were many employees who went ahead and took advantage of that because I do believe that people want to know more and they want to be able to have good information in real time to make the best decisions they can to stay safe and healthy. And I'll tell you, the numbers of people across our system who did that are are really quite impressive. And in speaking just informally to some of my colleagues about that and why they decided to do that, And people were saying, you know, I just feel like it's helpful to know. And the fact that our leadership made that an offer for us uh, tells us that they really care about us and we are working together on getting through this. And even our EVP of quality, Dr. Melinda Ashton, and one of her colleagues, Dr. Shilpa Patel, they actually got published in an article 
uh, they wrote regarding that exact thing about testing and finding out, you know, how did that help not only in terms of clinical information, but in terms of just psychological well-being for people. And I think that goes along with our efforts with our clinical psychologists um, who are using this stress psychological first aid model to, again, support our physicians and leaders so that they know how to, for themselves, really manage their own stress levels and be able to bring their best selves, you know, to help their patients. We've watched the numbers spike, and I know there's news that uh, a number of the new cases affected children. We know that at Kapilani, it's amazing what you folks do there to help families of young children who are ailing. We're, we're really proud of uh, the way that I think people have really stepped up, and we've got just an amazing workforce, people who are very committed and dedicated and very competent in giving the care that they're here to give. I mean, I really believe that one of the things that makes Hawaii Pacific Health a standout is that each and every employee really embraces our mission of creating a healthier Hawaii. And that shows, I think, definitely in our frontline caregivers. Um, And it shows in more subtle ways for those of us who are sort of behind the scenes. You know, someone like me, an organizational effectiveness, I don't ever get to work on the front lines with our with our patients. But I think I could very confidently say that my colleagues, our coworkers, and all the shared services departments really take to heart that what we do every day is a contribution to helping our frontline employees and colleagues, the physicians, the nurses, the technicians, all of all of the people in the clinical positions that are doing that work. And um, at each of our facilities, Kapiolani Medical Center, Polymomi Medical Center, Straw Medical Center, Wilcox Medical Center, I think if you, if you had a chance, Catherine, to speak to people at each of those, you would hear a very consistent message. And that has stemmed really primarily because our leadership, Ray, right at the top, you know, has, has set the course for us. And creating a healthier Hawaii, I, I believe that you can see that in the actions and behaviors, not just the words, but we're, but really in what we're doing. And I think, you know, most of us would, would agree that actions do speak louder than words. And I hope our community and, and families and patients actually are experiencing that. Well, I know we have checked in with Dr. Marion Mellish because she was tapped because of her expertise with Kawasaki syndrome when they were noticing the inflammatory uh, disease syndrome in New York. There's some deep knowledge in our community uh, about these diseases, and, and I know everybody just, you know, we want we want to know more. We want to know how we can support our healthcare professionals and just create a healthier community as we get through Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would echo that very much, Catherine. And, you know, I want to thank you and Hawaii Public Radio for continuing to spotlight how do we do this together because it's a message that I think um, we each need to own. It's that sense of shared responsibility. People want to make <laughs> really make this a better situation, of course, individually for our families as well as the community. And being in an island state is very much, I think, it's really showing that we've got to do this together to make it better for all of us. Allison Zeck of Hawaii Pacific Health talking about the efforts underway to help staff across all its facilities cope during this time of stress dealing with a growing number of COVID cases. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The exhibition, 30 Americans, features American book covers by Zyveria Simmons, whose works examine identity through history, heritage, and experience. HonoluluMuseum.org. To have ongoing access to some of the best conversations on the planet, you know, 
very exciting to, to have a statewide conversation on an ongoing basis. I love hearing what's going on on, on the other islands. You know, it's not, it's not an interruption to my day to hear what's going on. I'm Duane Preble, and I'm a sustaining member of Hawaii Public Radio. Hawaii's Department of Public Safety says three adult correction officers and six inmates have tested positive for coronavirus at the Oahu Community Correctional Center, OCCC. That's the focus of today's reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. And we're joined this morning by Kevin Dayton, who has a story on this topic. Kevin, thanks for joining us. And you start your piece writing about an isolation unit at OCCC. Describe what happens there. Sure, Bill. Thanks very much. Uh, like other prisons and jails, OCCC has been placing incoming inmates in a holding area for 14 days to get them past the incubation period for COVID-19. And the hope, of course, is that that will keep um, incoming prisoners from infecting other inmates and causing the disease to spread inside. At OCCC, the holding area has been Module 19, which probably makes Module 19 the most high-risk uh, section of the jail for infection. And now the Department of Public Safety is reporting, now that the Repub Department is reporting that six inmates and three staff members have tested positive, and we are told those would be the first uh, infections in the state correction system. And we are among the first, I'm sorry. And we are being told that at least one inmate in that module and one corrections officer who was working there are among the folks that were infected. And that concept of, of COVID within the correctional system generally is part of a much broader story. Absolutely. Um, as you look um, around the nation, um, the COVID-19 threat is, is pretty dire in correctional facilities, particularly overcrowded facilities, such as the four correctional community correctional centers that we have in Hawaii. And those, of course, are our state-run jails. Um, as of August 3rd, Department of Public Safety reports, we had about 1,747 prisoners in our jails, and that would include uh, Kauai Community Correctional Center, Maui Community Correctional Center, Hawaii Community Correctional Center, and, of course, Triple C. OCCC is the biggest. Um, there were 938 men and women inmates being held there as of August 3rd, um, and that jail has a design capacity of 638, so you can, you can imagine how crowded it is. And um, corrections officers will tell you that there really is no way to social distance in that sort of setting, um, and COVID-19, of course, can spread very rapidly in crowded conditions like that. And just to give you a sense of the scope of the problem, um, Federal Bureau of Prisons, obviously they run a much larger system than ours. They're about 30 times the size of the state system. They have had <clears throat> nearly 11,000 inmate infections and more than 1,300 staff infections across the country. Um, most of those people recovered, but more than um, 111 of the inmates uh, in the federal system actually died. So in Hawaii, a lot of the attention has focused on reducing overcrowding to the extent <clears throat> that, that we can. Um, you may recall that uh, in April, Hawaii Public Defender James Tabe filed a re request with the Supreme Court to try to reduce the population in our state facilities. And the Supremes did establish uh, an expedited process for releasing low-risk inmates um, to try to get the numbers down inside. However, um, that initiative did shut down in June, and since then, um, advocates have been pointing out that the jail population has been creeping back up again. And of course, the case counts in Hawaii at the same during the same period have gotten much, much worse. So last week, the state announced that it had its um, first COVID-19 case at OCCC, and since then, as we as we mentioned already, there have been six confirmed cases at OCCC among the inmates and three among the staff. And so that also leads to the question about uh, the status of testing at, at OCCC, both among staff and among inmates. Sure. Um, the, the, the protocol for Department of Public Safety basically system-wide has been they do not test all inmates. <clears throat> In general, the state has been testing inmates who show respiratory infection symptoms or inmates that the department believes may have had contact with someone who has the virus. Um, and public safety officials say that that's in keeping with CDC protocols. And among other issues, certainly for, uh, for staffers, personal protective equipment, uh, what's the situation there? 
Um, well, there, there, for some time now, there's been uh, sort of a rumbling in the staff, uh, concerns about what they perceive to be um, an uh, inadequate uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, for example, um, ACOs report that, that the prison system gave them basically two cloth masks this past spring, and they don't have the um, more elaborate sort of surgical-grade um, masks that would protect them from infection. So they're, they're very concerned about that. And, of course, they're working in very close quarters with these inmates. COVID in the uh, correctional system, certainly a story that we will continue to uh, keep an eye on. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for uh, your report today. Okay. Thank you, Bill. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. You can read that story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, providing maxillofacial, facial plastic, and reconstructive surgery, specializing in comprehensive dental implant surgery. drdavidhiranaka.com. Join us tonight at 8 p.m. on HBR2 for the next in our Hawaii Symphony Orchestra broadcasts. It's a soundscape of Nordic nature and beauty as conductor Carlos Miguel Prieto and pianist Soyun Kate Lee perform Grieg's beloved concerto and Sibelius's powerful Symphony No. 2. That's today at 8 p.m. on HBR2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Furniture Plus Design. Twelve weeks from today is Election Day. And while a presidential race usually draws a lot more voter turnout than a primary, this year's primary election in Hawaii marked extremely high voter participation, 51 percent in the state's first statewide mail-in election. For a closer look at what we can look forward to, we're joined by HPR government reporter Ryan Finnerty. And Ryan, for, for starters, the Honolulu mayor's race features two candidates who are not career politicians. Yeah, that's right, Bill. The two races covering county mayorships were the big story of the night. Uh, as you mentioned on Oahu, two outsider candidates, candidates who had, or at least billed themselves as outsiders, uh, were the, the top two finishers. That was Rick Blangiardi and Keith Amamiya. They beat established candidates like uh, former Congresswoman Colleen Honabusa, City Council Member Kim Pine, and former Honolulu Mayor Mufi Hanneman. On Hawaii Island, uh, there was a, a somewhat similar result. County prosecutor Mitch Roth and community organizer Ikaika Marzo knocked out incumbent Harry Kim, who now will not even be on the ballot in the general election. So uh, voters uh, gave him uh, the option to retire or to uh, pursue other, uh, other interests as he sees fit. Um, and there was also the much-watched race to replace Honolulu prosecuting attorney Keith Kaneshiro, who... Uh, is the target of a federal corruption investigation and has been on a leave of absence for months. Well-known uh, former Judge Steve Alm finished first, and uh, deputy, a former deputy prosecutor, Megan Cow, finished second to beat uh, the progressive candidate, Jackie Esser, in that race. Um, another big story of the night uh, was the, the race for our second congressional district. That's the one uh, that covers the more rural parts of Oahu and all of the neighbor islands. The seat currently held by Tulsi Gabbard, who earlier this year announced that she would not be seeking re-election. Kai Kahele, the state senator from Hilo, won that race. And uh, and that was somewhat seen as a, as the, the likely the likely outcome based on polling and, and fundraising. But it's pretty significant because he would be the first neighbor island resident Hawaii has ever sent to Congress. And he would also be only the second Native Hawaiian since statehood that uh, will represent Hawaii in Congress. And he spoke with HPR on election night about the significance of those milestones. You know, never in our state's history have we had an opportunity to send someone to Congress that has lived largely their entire life on the neighbor islands. And it brings a unique 
perspective to the delegation who sometimes can be faulted for being too Oahu-centric. And it allows uh, that neighbor island voice and perspective uh, within the delegation. And, you know, we have much different challenges than the island of Oahu. We're going to see that when, when I'm able to join the delegation. So I think it's a big deal. And Kahele said that uh, he's ready to work with the delegation and, uh, and focus on economic recovery and getting more federal assistance to Hawaii to help deal with the pandemic. Um, and, and Bill, I thought that one of the really noteworthy things about this particular primary race was how, uh, how uncompetitive it was. This was an open seat, meaning the incumbent wasn't running, and, and that doesn't come around too often in smaller states like Hawaii that don't have many seats in Congress. It happened last in 2018 uh, in Hawaii's other congressional district, which covers the urban parts of Oahu, urban Honolulu, and that was after Colleen Hanabusa stepped down to run for governor against David Ige. And that was really in contrast to the race uh, on Saturday, it was a really highly competitive, very contested primary. Uh, Ed Case, the current congresswoman, won after entering the race late, uh, and that was really in sharp contrast to Kai Kahele's victory, where, uh, as we said earlier, it was really seen as almost a foregone conclusion. Um, he is not the the holder of that seat yet. He'll face Republican challenger Joe Akana, who's from Waianae on Oahu, in the November uh, general election but uh, Kahele is the, the likely favorite. You know, you raise an interesting point, Ryan, about the uh, power of incumbency. Certainly that's, that's true in elections generally, but certainly here in Hawaii in, in particular, in, in some races that has been the, uh, the case and uh, incumbencies, a lot of incumbents, as you well know, in terms of the legislature uh, running without opposition. But uh, there was a race also, House District 13, involving an incumbent a little different uh, bit of a story there yeah this was an interesting one it's uh, i think safe to say the the closest race of the night house district 13 which covers all of molokai all of lanai and uh parts of east maui lynn decoit uh, who is from molokai is the incumbent uh she's held that seat for several years was originally appointed to it by governor david Ige, and then has since one re-election. Uh, she was challenged by Walter Ritty, who is a well-known Native Hawaiian activist, uh, also from Molokai. Uh, and this was, you and I were watching it on Saturday night, was was really close the entire time. Uh, in the end, they were separated by just 91 votes with Decoit, the incumbent, coming out on top. Um, interesting to note that there were uh, more than double that number of blank votes, so people who were eligible to vote in that race and chose not to, they submitted ballots for other and, and voted in other races, but didn't pick a candidate in that one for whatever reason. Uh, maybe they couldn't decide or didn't uh, didn't didn't want to. Um, so those blank votes would have given uh, one candidate or the other the edge, most likely. Uh, but this is interesting because uh, the the race went to a recount uh, under a. a pretty recent law, 2019 state law, that now requires an automatic recount in elections if the margin is less than 100 votes difference or a quarter of a percent. So this one did uh, did hit that 100 vote threshold uh, to trigger an automatic recount. Uh, that was taking place on Monday, and we are expecting to get results in the recount potentially as soon as today, Tuesday. We will see what uh, happens with that and really sort of a, a reset now on the elections themselves, on the uh, primaries as the primaries go into the rearview mirror and now toward the general election in November. Uh, and uh, we would think in the weeks between now and the election, a few more policy specifics likely to be coming up for points of debate. Yeah, that's right. Particularly uh, on these mayoral races where executives during this ongoing recession and this pandemic crisis, people are really leaning on the executive branches of state, local and federal government to uh, to take action to address the problems that are facing individuals and businesses. And so that means that uh, there will be a lot of expectation on these new mayors, uh, whoever they are, come uh, 2021. Rick Blangiardi, 
has said that uh, he's going to be firming up his platform a little bit more in the coming months. When I talked to him on election night, he said that because the situation is changing so it's so fluid and changing so rapidly day to day and week to week that he is open to uh, adjusting his policy proposals uh, as things develop. And, and that's kind of been what most candidates are saying, um, that it, it's kind of hard to make really concrete proposals now, knowing that uh, they won't take office for several months. And, and it's very unclear what our situation will be at that time. More than one interesting executive race heading in November, including the one in Washington, D.C. Ryan Finnerty, you know him. He covers government for Hawaii Public Radio. Thanks, Ryan. Happy to do it, Bill. And you can find Ryan's stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. And just one note, since we taped that interview, a recount of those votes in House District 13 did give the victory to the incumbent, Linda Coit, uh, 3,244 votes to Walter Ritty's 3,151. hiring? That's what a lot of people want to know in an increasingly difficult economic environment here in Hawaii. Catherine Cruz recently spoke to the head of the University of Hawaii's Cancer Center. Dr. Randall Holcomb says scores of a very particular type of position are available, and the University of Hawaii's Outreach College is about to offer training to help. It's a clinical research certificate program, and it starts later this month. The reason that we're starting this course is because there's a huge need here in Hawaii to have trained clinical research professionals. We're involved in the conduct of uh, clinical trials for patients with cancer. We do that in association with our clinical partners in the Hawaii Cancer Consortium. Those include Queens Health System, Hawaii Pacific Health, Kuwakini Medical Center, Adventist Health Castle, uh, the medical school, and also HMSA. And in addition to those individuals and those organizations that are involved in the Hawaii Cancer Consortium, we also have several oncology private practice offices that are part of our network and also Tripler Army Medical Center. So we have a fairly broad and vast network where we provide access to the most novel cutting edge uh, treatments available for patients with cancer. And to conduct that research, you need clinical research professionals who assist in the management of those patients while they're on a clinical trial. Right, but they might need special certifications in order to apply for these jobs that might be available. Absolutely, they do need special certification. Most of them are hired either by us here at the Cancer Center or by our clinical partners. We currently have, just in the oncology arena, probably about 40 clinical research professional positions open at the moment. There are some additional ones outside of oncology in uh, cardiovascular medicine or infectious diseases. All of these individuals need a special certification. They need some training. And because there's no training program here in Hawaii, we either have to train everybody initially when we hire them or we have to bring people from the mainland. These jobs are in demand here in Hawaii, but also all across the country. I can tell you an anecdote. We had a a person who was working for us here at the Cancer Center whose spouse was in the military and uh, had to move back to the mainland, to Chicago. And she was a trained clinical research professional. Uh, She applied to several different positions in Chicago and had five job offers within a week. Wow. So So, high demand. uh, There's always a shortage of people in this field. Uh, because there aren't really enough uh, training programs. And also, sometimes people don't understand um, uh, that this is potentially a good career path. We also have several people, uh, there's always some turnover because we have several people that are interested in health sciences that want to go to medical school uh, who may need to take some time off before going to medical school or haven't been successful in their first round of applications. So this year, for instance, at the Cancer Center, uh, we've had three people who were working in our clinical trials office uh, who are going to medical school this fall. 
So it's it's a good stepping stone uh, for people uh, that want to move on to other careers in uh, in healthcare as well. You mentioned these open positions. I mean, these are pretty good paying jobs. They are. Uh, I think in Hawaii, we estimate they pay between forty-five and eighty-five thousand a year. There are also jobs for trained professionals uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, they don't. They don't hire too many people here in Hawaii, but of course, uh, across the mainland, there there are lots of positions there as well. Pharmaceutical companies tend to pay a little bit more than uh, um, than our healthcare entities and university here in Hawaii, but but they're they're reasonably good jobs. They pay well, and there always seems to be a need for more trained people. We're in the process of working to build an early phase clinical research center here at the. Uh, cancer center uh, that's being done in collaboration with our clinical partners in the Hawaii Cancer Consortium. And when we get that open in the next two years, we'll have even more positions for clinical research professionals to assist patients on phase one type cancer trials. And what's the snapshot of cancer here in Hawaii? Do you know? Sure. There are about 6,700 new cases of cancer every year. About uh, 2,500 people die from cancer uh, every year here in Hawaii. The main cancers that affect our population are fairly typical of other places in the United States, including uh, lung cancer, breast cancer, uh, prostate cancer, and colorectal cancer. But we have very unique disparities across our different racial and ethnic populations here in Hawaii uh, that we work very hard here at the Cancer Center uh, to try to understand so that we can address those. And we also have some cancers, which are a bit less frequent than the ones I've mentioned, that occur at a very high rate here in Hawaii, and that includes liver cancer and pancreatic cancer, for example. And then just the uh, occurrence or the rates in women versus men? So the rates in, in women and men are relatively equal. Again, the rates in different ethnic populations are really what the differences that we see. So we do tend to see more cancers in our native Hawaiian population and our Pacific Islanders here in the state. And even in addition to the increased number of cases, those groups tend to have a higher death rate from cancer than many of our other ethnic groups here. So that's an important thing to address. And it's one of the reasons that doing clinical trials for cancer is so critically important here in Hawaii, because our population here otherwise is not represented in those trials. So we don't know if these new drugs that are being tested are really efficacious in the population that we have here in Hawaii unless we test it in this population. So doing clinical trials here in Hawaii with our population is critically important. And we are doing a number of projects you know, related to COVID. Uh, we are. We have some. Of course, at the moment, we don't know that COVID has a very direct link to later development of cancer, though we do know that cancer patients are at particularly increased risk from serious complications from COVID because they have suppressed immune system and they may be undergoing chemotherapy. We have some clinical trials ongoing to monitor patients who have cancer, who've developed COVID-19 infections, so we can try to understand how this infection affects those patients. And those are national studies which we're participating in. And we also have some studies which are ongoing to try to determine what the molecular basis is for the severe disease that some people get compared to the very mild disease that other people get. And some of those factors that may be influencing that are also related to the development of cancer. So they're particularly interesting to us. And so this certificate program that you're offering, who do you expect to reach? Are, are you looking for folks that already have some kind of background in healthcare? So I think it's probably most attractive to people who have either some healthcare or science background, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. You don't you don't have to be a healthcare worker to get trained as a clinical research professional. Our clinical research associates do interact and interface with patients, so someone who's, who's comfortable in doing that is probably a plus. We expect that we'll probably get some people who are in other areas of healthcare who want to move up to a more interesting and varied job, perhaps. 
We are also opening this certificate program course to students who are thinking of future careers uh, in healthcare um, because it may be uh, a good way to find a job post-graduation before moving on to other positions, or we hope they'll fall in love with being a clinical research professional and stay in that career long term. So how many slots do you have available for this certificate program? Is there a limit? So we expected that probably 20 would be our limit for this round. If we have a great turnout, we'll offer it again. Okay. All right. I was just about to ask, uh, had you offered it before through outreach? No, this is brand new. Okay. This has never been offered before. There's never been a training course here in the state of Hawaii before. So this will be the first comprehensive clinical research professional training course. Patients will get a certificate from completing the, uh, the program, and they'll also attain certification, national certification, through the what's called the CITI, C-I-T-I program, uh, which is the Collaborative Institutional Training Initiative. This is a certification that all clinical research professionals need to complete before starting work on a job, and uh, they'll get that as part of this uh, certificate course that we're offering. Okay, so it's a great opportunity for folks to get this training and get a leg up to a I better job. I think it's a good opportunity even for people in other fields uh, who um, uh, you know, are thinking of uh, trying something different, and this would give them a taste of it. And then if it's something that piques their interest, they can move on into uh, one of the positions that are available. Dr. Randall Holcomb, head of the UH Cancer Center, which will hold a webinar tomorrow for those interested in that course on clinical research. You can find links at our website, the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's the program for today. Tomorrow, we're going to bring you a special report on contact tracing in Hawaii. What happened? Where are we now? How did we get here? And where are we going? You can be in touch by calling our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR, or you can tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Bill Dorman. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.